you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. Uh, let's turn to the book of James. Turn to the book of James chapter 2. So we got a good uh, kickoff last week, a good launch. I know it was a very dense sermon, and there was a lot said in a very short amount of time, but such is the nature of beginning a series and also, also a little bit the preaching of uh, lectionary as a series. You know, if you're, if you're doing a series that is straight through a book verse by verse, you can kind of slow down and take your time each week. Uh, but when we're trying to capture the major themes and the major essences of a book, we have to spend a little more time on the front end than we necessarily may have to do every sermon. Um, but we're going to read from James 2, verses 1 through 17. There, there are two sermons this morning. I think every, every time we preach James, there's two sermons because James preaches itself. Um, so even in the reading of the text, we're getting a sermon this morning. Um, and that's actually one of the difficulties in preaching through James is the fact that it does kind of preach itself. So what can we bring to it to uh, shed some light on it and, and make it relevant for us in, in our world? James 2, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> My brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes to your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take the notice, and if you take notice of the one wearing fine clothes and say, Have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, Stand over there or sit here at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with your evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and you say to them, my thoughts and prayers are, I mean, I'm sorry, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. 
I think we all can probably relate to um, this text a little bit because we've all experienced favoritism somehow. Um, I would say most of us at some point have probably been um, on, the, on, the, on the bad end of favoritism where we've been looked over despite our gifts and our skills and our talents and, and who we are, maybe on a job or in church or in school or in whatever. I think we've all had, all had times where we could look at a situation and say, I was treated wrong because of favoritism, because someone else was preferred because of their race or their age or their sex or who their family was or whatever the case may be. At the same time, I think some of us have probably been the beneficiary of favoritism at times. Um, if you were raised with siblings, you probably took favoritism every chance you could get it, right? Um, or, or on the job even. There's nothing wrong, I guess, sometimes at taking what's handed to you. But I think we've all had the experience of having the privilege of uh, benefiting from favoritism. Um, so favoritism, I think, is something we all can relate to. It's something that we've all either experienced in a good or a negative way. But favoritism, um, favoritism can be toxic. A popular, uh, an ethos of popularity, uh, an ethos of favoritism, an ethos of preference within any organization, within any community, within any society, um, doesn't always play itself out, or most of the time, doesn't play itself out well and for the benefit of those who are participating in the life of that community. Here's why. Favoritism doesn't consider the values or the intrinsic convictions of a community. And, and, and when favoritism becomes the preferred ethos of a community or popularity, that community will lose its identity in exchange for perceived influence, affluence, and power. And here's a good example of how, that, how we exchange that off. Um, this isn't like, you know, this, this is a, you may think of this as a minor thing, but in our family conversation this week, this was something that was a major point of conversation from Bianca, who's not here with us today. Uh, she's working in childcare, so glad to see our youth stepping up and doing stuff, right? Pretty awesome. Uh, but this week, she uh, told me about um, marching band season starting up, and uh, there was a local newspaper, or, or, and she can tell you the exact details, but there was a local newspaper, there was a local Facebook page who decided to do this Best of Gaston County marching band competition. And the way that they did it was they put a poll online and you were supposed to tell all your friends and family to go online and vote for who is the best marching band in Gaston County. Y'all already know how this goes, right? Okay. Um, so it goes on. Um, Bianca and her band actually doesn't know about it. We're, parents are never told about it. Bianca comes home from school the other day and she's just tore up. As we say in our family, tore up from the floor up, right? About the fact that the new shiny bigger school in town won this competition. And they were bragging about it on social media and texting their friends and like really ripping it. Bianca School is a much smaller, more rural school. A fantastic band program, by the way, for that size school. Um, but this other school got all the accolades, right? And come to find out, actually, a lot of the schools didn't send out notification about this competition. And so on the way home from school, as Bianca was venting about this, I asked her, I was like, because in my mind as the marketer, right, I'm saying, man, this could have been great for the school. This could have built momentum. This could have brought 
you know, this could have uh, pulled people together to rally around a cause. It could have really put the word out there about East Gaston High School. It could have, it could have, even if we didn't win, it could have showed the county that we support our students and all of that. But she answered me explaining why the band director didn't give the information out. And when she did, I fully understood it. You see, a popularity contest doesn't actually determine who is the best band in Gaston County. <laughs> the way they play and the way they march, right, and the way they perform, those are the things that they are working on. Those are the things that they consider important. Those are the things that force them to go out on the field and almost have heat strokes after school, to go to camp for two and three weeks during the summer. Those are their values, right? Um, the band director didn't even share the link or the vote with us parents. It didn't. Because of his deep conviction that popularity contest subtract from being committed to music and marching, which is what marching band is all about. He was concerned with winning a contest of favorites. Or excuse me, he wasn't concerned with winning a contest of favorites. He was concerned with being a marching band that can earn recognition on the field where it matters where a band actually does what a band does. And like I said, at first I was like, you know, this is, he missed a really good opportunity here to leverage some energy, to leverage some marketing towards our band. But it made sense when she explained it. Sure, participating in the contest, advertising the contest may have done all of those things, there may have been a good end to it in terms of building momentum, rallying people around something and all of that. But that's not what their leader imagines band being about. Turning what they worked hard for into a popularity contest subtracts from the vision of that community of marching band members. And it cheapens what they're all about. Now, James is not just concerned with how an ethos of favoritism and popularity might affect the vision and work of the church. He is mostly concerned with how such practices devalue the human, how it devalues humanity and the human needs of the people who come into the worshiping assembly. And so James begins this particular reading this morning that we're drawing from lectionary with what I would like to call a parable. I'm not the only one to do that. Several commentaries and scholars considered this section to actually contain two parables. This first parable is, uh, gives the scenario of people who come to the assembly. And in the Greek, this is synagogue, but James is writing to Christian Jews here. So these are assemblies of Christians. They may have come from Jewish descent, but now they claim faith in the Messiah. So it's a Christian synagogue, if it's any synagogue. The word synagogue just means assembly, the coming together, a gathering, if you will. And James says, are you following Jesus if when a rich person comes in with their fancy clothes and their fancy jewelry, you give them a front row seat or a seat of influence or a seat of prominence, but when a poor person who smells bad and looks bad and is dirty and uh, doesn't fit your mold even for what you'd like to even hang out with in real life comes in and you tell them, hey, you sit back there 
Or come over here and sit at my feet. Sit on the floor. Let's give the seats to those who are wealthy and clean and in prominence. Now James begins this parable with a, with a rhetorical rebuke. Are you still following Christ if you do this? And then he follows up the parable with um, a couple of responses. The first response that James gives to this scenario is a socially, rational, a, a socially rational response. And the second response he gives to this scenario is a scriptural and theological response. Uh, so let's first turn our attention to this socially rational response. What James does here is he asks his readers to think about the scenario in the parable, um, and he does this, he, he causes them to reflect upon this scenario by asking them to consider five rhetorical questions. If you prefer, if you give preference to the rich and powerful in your assemblies, number one, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? These are straight from the text, by the way. Rhetorical question two. Has God not chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Rhetorical question three. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Four. Is it not the rich who drag you into court? Five. Is it not the rich who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? And then James gives a scriptural and theological response. So not only does he provide this social rationale for why this is a bad idea, he then t tells them that even given their, and remember these are Jewish Christians, even given their Jewish ethic, and now their new Christian ethic, which isn't new, it's just a recapitulation and a re-envisioning even of Jewish ethic. Now that you've been given this, this is what you should consider. This is your heritage. This is what has been handed to you. And he makes reference to what he calls the royal law. I love this. He calls this the royal law. And what is the royal law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You should love your neighbor as yourself. You should treat others equitably as you would treat yourself. Now this isn't obviously a new commandment, even though Jesus did say it in Matthew 22. It's not a new commandment. Um, but when Jesus was challenged by the Pharisees, what are the most important rules to follow? What is the greatest commandment? Jesus said that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind is the first one. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said all of the law and all of the prophets hinge on these two commandments. They hang on these two commandments. In other words, this royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, is not just what is envisioned in the Big Ten or the Ten Commandments, but it is part of the Big Two. It is one of the greatest commandments. And Jesus even claims that the whole of the Hebrew Bible, everything that this assembly had ever believed about God, hinges upon 
the adherence to the commandments to love God and to love others as ourselves. And if that wasn't enough, James pushes even further with the scriptural theological argument and he invokes the Ten Commandments themselves. And he reminds these Jewish hearers of their understanding of righteousness, what it, what it was. And their understanding of righteousness when they were beholden only to the law and not to Christ also was that if you break one of these, you have broken all of them. One commandment broken and the whole thing comes tumbling down according to the way Jews understood their own righteousness before God with whom they were in covenant with. Now within the Christian faith, of course, we know we have grace and liberty and all that. And James even mentions that here. He calls it the law of liberty. We might even translate that as the law of liberation or even God's intent for liberation. And what James says here is that within the context of a people who pursue the liberation, the liberating power of God in one another's lives, that to prefer rich over the poor is a violation of that law. And just as if you violate one of the ten, if you violate one law in the law of liberty, you are no longer practicing the law of liberty, he says. You have become something else. You're no longer living out and embodying what he came to create when he, when he, or, or, or what he came to institute or initiate or inaugurate when he called forth the church to carry out the work of the kingdom of God. So this is a pretty harsh rebuke to this practice. This practice of preferring some people over other people. Then he concludes in the final four verses of this passage with a challenge to dead faith. James challenges iterations of Christianity within his context and within ours. He challenges iterations of Christianity here that talk a lot about faith, but not enough about works, ethics, and behaviors. He asks some more rhetorical questions. What good is it if you say you have faith, but do not have works? Can faith alone save you, he asks. And then he gives a final parable, followed up with yet another rhetorical question. And this parable or this scenario is a scenario of someone who is naked and hungry. And he says, if they come to you and they are naked and they are hungry and all you do is tell them, hey, go away, be happy and find some food, or as I humorously put in, thought my thoughts and prayers are with you, because that seems to be the most generic Christian response we find in our world today about things. Oh, my thoughts and prayers are with them, but I'm not going to do anything to change what's going on. James says that kind of faith is a dead faith. No, there's nothing wrong with faith, right? James isn't throwing faith out. You know, sometimes we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, that's not what James is arguing for. Thoughts and prayers are good. Telling people that they should go and be in peace and be filled, those are wonderful things to bless people and to tell people with and to hope for them. But if that's all you do, James is saying, then your faith is dead. Even your thoughts and prayers have no life to them. Even your good intentions have no life to them if there's no flesh and blood put on what you are asking God for and what you are wishing for that person even in, in, in a personal interaction. 
This is what James is arguing for. Not, not a works-based religion, but a religion that believes so strongly in the salvation of God that it then lives in response to it in its own life. Not only as an individual, but how that salvation impacts others around us. What it means to others, especially those who are in need in this, in this context. Those who are suffering, those who need their human, physical, temporal needs met. James is arguing for a faith that is not just invisible and faithy and spiritual and theological. He's arguing for a faith that means something to the people who encounter it. Right? Now, I'm just going to get on a soapbox here for a moment, but I, I don't do it often. But let me do it right here, okay? Folks, that is what we're supposed to be about. Offering salvation of the whole person to the people we encounter, right? Loving them right where they're at. Wanting more for them, but not just wanting it in some kind of thoughts and prayers kind of way, but wanting it so much in a way that we believe that as we partner with God, God can equip us to carry out his mission in the earth and to meet the needs of those not just their temporal needs, but their spiritual needs as well. Their needs for community, their needs for love, their, 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 uh, their, their needs for hospitality and for provision. Yes, all of that. That God is concerned with the whole person. You know, we had this weird kind of transition after the Reformation where everything became about what we believe, right? And our faith became very propositional, you know, because the most important thing was not what you did anymore. The most important thing was what you believed. But James is calling us back to a, to a faith that, is, that, that isn't focused just on the propositions, but that turns its attentions to the ethical carrying out of what the gospel has done in our lives and how that might impact others. And he asks this rhetorical question at the end of this parable, what is the good of that? <laughs> and let me tell you, church, if we don't start asking ourselves that question, the world, the unchurched, they're asking that question about us. Every time we say our thoughts and prayers are with you, every time we say, I hope that things work out good for you, every time we offer some sort of platitude without any action behind it, it causes the world to ask the question, what good is that? What good is it? And if we don't have a faith <laughs> that is good for those who are hungry and thirsty... And if we don't have a faith that is good for those who are looking for answers in a world that is filled right now with deception and confusion, then just like the marching band who ran the risk of no longer being a marching band, I say we may be doing something, but it may not be church anymore. And we need to pay attention to that. Because if we don't, we're ignorant because everyone else already is. Amen? Coming off the soapbox now. Amen. Thank y'all. Really, don't encourage me. Don't encourage me. But what makes the parable at the beginning of this discourse so interesting to me is what James might have been indicating with the, with the particular description he gives of this kind of rich person. He describes them in the parable as wearing gold rings. Now, in our translation, it says fine clothes. 
But that word, the Greek word, can also be translated as bright clothes. Some of your translations actually will say that. I think NIV does, if I'm not mistaken. Bright clothes. And then he also describes them as wearing these noticeable gold rings. Now, Bo Reiki, who's a, a New Testament scholar, uh, he believes that James may be describing a Roman politician. Because Roman politicians wore what was known as a toga candide, which was a bleached white toga that they would wear when they were seeking to gain supporters for their political causes. Mm. See, I'm getting back on the soapbox now. Y'all encouraged me. Why did y'all do that? And not only would these um, politicians wear these bleached white togas into public assemblies, Enigbord Cobman, and if I pronounce that wrong, one of you scholars can tell me later how to pronounce that guy's last name because there's not enough vowels for it. Another New Testament scholar notes that gold rings bearing Roman insignia were common jewelry ran, worn by the equestrian order in Rome, which was a group of Roman knights who emerged in the first century as political and administrative figures. And their rings were important because their rings could pass laws with that insignia. All they had to do was dip it in wax and put it on a piece of paper. They had a lot of power. It wasn't just about the wealth, you see. It was about the power that that wealth had given them. Now, I think that there's some uh, validation to this argument that this is what James is talking about, found in the text itself. Because James isn't just talking about the typical rich person. He's talking about the rich person that persecutes you, who oppresses you. He talks about the wealthy person who drags you into court, you being the Christian church here, the assembly of the, of the faith. It is not they who oppress you, he says. Is it not they who drag you into the courts? Remember, this is written during a, during a time of great Christian persecution. Is it not these people who are doing this to you? Is it not they who blaspheme the name spoken over you because they still claim that Caesar is Lord and Christ isn't? Are, are, are these not the same people and yet when they come in your assembly, you give them a special seat? What's up with that? Let me tell you what's up with that. The early church was tempted to prefer these individuals in the hopes that they would politically protect them from persecution or that they would secure some mutual benefit from them by honoring them in their assemblies. Now, I want to connect some dots here, but I'm not because y'all are going to think I'm political. But if you can't connect the dots... You're not hearing what James is saying right here. That the church has to be careful and intentional about how we view those in power and in politics and what our motives are as we engage with them in deferential ways. Right? The early church was tempted to secure their own safety. They were tempted to revere these individuals in the hope that they might throw a little benefit their way, that they might secure their place in the society a little more, that they might give the church a little bit more prominence 
than it was getting under great persecution. But just like the marching band who doesn't want to compromise its mission, despite the ridicule that may come from not playing the world's games of popularity and power, listen to this, the church is never called to compromise its radical love, inclusion, and advocacy for the poor for its own safety or its own place in society. Never. Never. And we have to ask ourselves the same rhetorical questions. Are you even following Jesus when you do that? Are you? Are you following the law of liberty if this is your motive and if this is what you are doing? And listen, I'm not going to assume anyone's motives. I'm just telling you what we got to be careful about. Amen? I understand that sometimes God brings people into the ear of Pharaoh and into the ear of the king and into the ear of the leader. I'm not saying God doesn't do that stuff. What I'm saying is that the church has to be cautious in how it prefers and how it, how it gives reverence to those figures and what our motives are in doing it. Why do we prefer them? Why do we want those seats? Why do we accept those invitations? You see, not only should we not be given seats to them, seats of preference to them, we should be wary of their invitations to their seats of influence as well. In other words, if we feel more honored that we got invited to the White House to eat with the president than we do when we get invited to eat with our poor neighbor who may live under a bridge, then our religion is no longer pure. Our religion is no longer pure. Finally, I hope I have a job next week. I think James, <laughs> I think James might also be teaching us some things about our own love, the church's love of celebrity. About our own love for Christian celebrities. Now, I came up in a youth group in the 90s. And when God called me, I thought I was going to be the next fill-in the Christian celebrity of that year. You know, I was going to be the next this, the next that. I was going to hold big crusades, right, and have the coolest bands on stage. And people were just going to run to the altar like Billy Graham back in those days, you know. Um, Christian celebrity culture was kind of peaking then, I think, for us. And, and I'll tell you what it did for me. It did two things. First of all, it kind of gave me this image to aspire to that was very unrealistic in the first place. And the second thing it did was probably the most detrimental thing it did to me as a young minister was it made me feel completely inadequate to do what God had called me to do because I always felt like I wasn't doing it as good as XYZ unless I was sharing the same stage as XYZ, right? Some of you probably can identify with that in your own lives, how that feels. Um, we in the church tend to phone over the best speakers, the best singers. We often measure someone's gospel, gospel effectiveness based on uh, the opportunities, the money, and the fame that they've earned as a result of their vocation. We fawn over those who take selfies with the famous and who sit at their fine tables. And while we should make judgments on those individuals or say what their motives are or, or what they're doing, 
Again, we must still resist the temptation to think that they have it right because that's who they get to sit with or because that's whose house they got invited to or because that's who they get to hang out with, right? This idea of celebrity that is really an American religion, right? We have our own pantheon of gods um, who live in Hollywoods and make tons of money off of our offerings to them. Um, not only is this an American religion that has trickled down into the church, uh, it is a false and idolatrous religion that the church needs to be attentive to that we're not falling captive to it within a Christian context. You see, if we claim to be a church for misfits, then let us be cautious of who we prefer to be in the front and who we would rather keep in the back. You know, we live in a society that feels like a 24-hour reality TV show. It really does. It feels like we're in a 24-hour reality TV show. And we're not just watching it, we're parts of it. Right? We get up every morning, we dress up our social media person, we make them look good, life may be falling apart, but hey, everything's great on Twitter. You know? We highlight the good parts, we edit out the bad parts, just like a good reality TV show does. You know, we want to be part of the action as much as possible. I'm preaching to me as much as I am to you, so don't think I'm being a hypocrite here. I know it. I get it. I'm just now really kind of seeing this bigger picture here. We live in this, this idea that we're in this reality, 24-hour reality TV show, and we're the actors. But here's the truth. We really aren't as important as we think we are. And the culture of celebrity that drives such vanity is toxic and leads to death. It leads to the death of our radical love for all, and it leads to the death of our call to be the church. When we engage ourselves in that kind of popularity competition for attention, and when we fawn over celebrity within our Christian context, that's not to say some of those who've risen to the more prominent places in Christianity should be ignored. I'm just saying they shouldn't be preferred over anyone else. When I imagine this church and its role in the world today and, and what's happening in the world today, one of the beautiful things about this church, this is something that I've been hearing, as I've been here almost a year now, right? Uh, so I've had a year to hear and to listen and to glean and to sit down with so many of you sitting down with some of you I haven't sat down with yet here in the next couple of weeks. I'm so excited about it. But as I've sat down with you and I've heard, one of the recurring themes that comes up is this, this idea that we're a church for misfits and that right now because of what is happening in the world culturally, socially, politically, religiously, there's a lot of folks who feel like misfits. They don't know the church they still go to on Sunday morning anymore. They don't understand why the cognitive dissonance has grown so wide and so deep. They don't even know the people beside them they used to worship with. They don't even understand like, like where they stand at on things anymore. And I believe we occupy a unique position to be an emergency room on the battlefield of what's happening in our world right now. To be triage. But you can't do that 
if you prefer the nice, clean folks and not the dirty, bleeding folks. You, you can't be that if you prefer the ones who look fresh and, and, and have the freshest ideas and seem to know or what's going on and seem to have figured it all out. You can't do that if that's the kind of person you prefer and you don't want the person who's in confusion and in deconstruction and doesn't know what they believe or who they are. Uh, they've got PTSD from the culture wars and they're looking for somebody to offer them some hope. And if we prefer those that have got it all together rather than those who need, desperately need us, we are no longer being what God has called us to be. Right? Working triage is a dirty job. Working in trauma is a dirty job. But listen, if we want to rise to the occasion and provide something to our world that is so desperately needed, then we need to be a church that abides with these deep convictions that no one should be preferred above another within the context of this assembly. Amen? And in fact, James says, God has preferred the poor. So if anybody is supposed to be preferred, then let's get a hold of them and love them and bless them and show them the goodness of God that abides within us or that we claim that abides within us. Amen? I thought I was getting off a soapbox and I didn't. Just got right back up on that thing. Where is it at? But this is the message of James in this passage as best as I can see it. That the assembly of God's people need to be careful with how they interplay with rich and powerful politics. Whether that is within the political theater of our nation or whether that is within the celebrity culture of our own church. That we need to be careful how we interact with it. We need to be careful about the deference we give to it we need to be careful about the preference we give to it. Now listen, don't leave here and go judging everybody else's motives for doing it. That's not what I'm asking you to do. You know, Listen, let them do what they do. Maybe you know someone or you've seen someone who's doing things. You go, man, that's just really doesn't seem like the church to me. Be careful, right? That's not what I'm telling us to do. We've got enough people critically analyzing the church right now. I'm sorry, I don't want you to do that. I want us to be the church. I want us to be cautious of it. I want us to pay attention to it. I want us to see the necessity of such an ethos in the church. Because that's what's going to change the world. I've given up trying to change the evangelical church at large. I don't even know where to begin. But we can begin right here. Amen? We can begin right here. And we can be a testimony to what it can look like. Stand with me. Amen? Go ahead. Musicians come and get ready to dis dismiss us this morning. The musicians come and our servers get ready. One thing I love about this church, one reason why I came here, now of course pastor and love it, is the fact that the sermon is not necessarily the climax of the sermon. The coming to the table is. To which we should all be thankful. Particularly when sermons are particularly uh, soapboxy on Sunday morning. But this table is a reminder to us. It's a reminder to us, and this sounds very cliche, but that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
And that when we as the people of God assemble together, gather around the message of the cross. We are telling the world and one another that there is room at the table for all of us. And the powerful don't get in the front of the line. Right? And they don't get preference. They share along with all of us. So let us read the invitation together and we'll participate in the Lord's Supper. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.